The Rock and Roll Coffee Show is brought to you by Writers and Rockers Coffee Company, keeping the music and memories alive with some damn good coffee. Be sure to pick up your Rock and Roll Coffee Show coffee only at writersandrockerscoffee.com. And also brought to you by Retroactive, located at Broadway at the Beach in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, keeping you retro with everything from 70s, 80s, and 90s. Shopretroactive.com. This is the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show, and I am Joe Sebelia. Thank you very much for joining me. My next guest is best known for being the lead singer of the band Little Caesar. Little Caesar, you, you might remember, were, hit the scene about the late 80s, early 90s with their cover of Aretha Franklin's Chain of Fools. Little Caesar had so much going for them when they signed with Geffen Records, and then the bottom fell out shortly after. Ron Young is the lead singer of the band Little Caesar, and Ron has a new book out titled Judge This Book by its cover, available now on Amazon. He explains everything that happened with Little Caesar, as well as more stories. And we discuss some of these stories in our conversation today. I had a great time talking with Ron about his new book and Little Caesar. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I want to take a minute to thank some of my sponsors, Writers and Rockers Coffee Company. WritersandRockersCoffee.com, you can get your very own Writers and Rockers and Rock and Roll Coffee Show signature blend. Get your coffee at WritersandRockersCoffee.com. I also want to give thanks to Retroactive. Retroactive is located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They have everything you need from 70s, 80s, and 90s retro. Visit them online at ShopRetroactive.com, or if you're in the Myrtle Beach area, stop on in and visit them in the store. Thank you so much for taking the time to watch. I hope you enjoy. I wanted to get you on the show because you have a new book out, right? I do. Judge this book by its cover. I've got it right here. Well, look at that. Yeah. yeah. Yes, because I, I felt that my resume of, you know, this is a joke, my 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 resume of failed musician, I wanted to add failed writer to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've got about, I think I got up to the San Antonio girl about halfway through. Ah, yes. yes yeah, yes. yeah. So uh, that's about where I'm at on it. And so far, it's been a very enjoyable, easy read. So it, it's that's a great good. book. Yeah. Well, you can thank our mutual friends, Dr. Steve Olivas, for that, because he worked with me on the book. Making yeah, sense, yeah. And making sense of my musings. So. <laughs> <laughs> what, what made you want to write a book now? Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I do interviews like this and I, you know, we do stories and everything. And when we're done, I've had so many people go, dude, you should write a book, you know, because I've really had this bizarre ever since as you're reading, since a young child, this weird connection to like notoriety or public awareness. And that's led me to know so many people that's made so many sort of bizarre stories from so many disconnected kind of things like getting into movies and being on the cover of newspapers and all this kind of shit. And, and so like people think you should write all this down. And I, it was funny because I, I did a podcast with Steve and when we were done, he's like, dude, you should write a book. You know, I write books. And, then, and I was like, 
okay, let's work together on it. And went through it, and it was a fun and easygoing process. And, you know, next thing I know, there's a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you if it, I mean, what a, about the process? So you're saying it was an easy process? It wasn't difficult for you to, to no, bring up all this? because we just, we just, you know, start at the beginning. You just start telling stories from your childhood, and you just keep going and going. And, you know, it, it's good to have someone that you work with to play counterpoint and kind of probe deeper into things or put a, you know, ask questions to get more information out to, to bring the full breadth of the story to life, so to speak. And so that made it really, I suggest if anybody's thinking a book, find somebody to collaborate with Mm. because, you know, it's very hard to judge. And I know this for music to judge my own work you know, we all think whatever we think of is fabulous, you know, know, or the other side of that coin, because I once heard somebody describe that, you know, an artist is someone who has this sense of grandiosity that the world needs to hear what they have created, combined with this crippling self-doubt. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think so many people I know are that way. They think everything's great. And then two minutes later, they're questioning as to whether it's worthy of anything at all. You know, so Mm -hmm. it makes it better when you work with people. You know, I've always, at least musically, been, you know, collaborative, you know, being in a band. Sure. Which is a blessing and a curse because then there's personalities and five quotes, so to speak. Um, but yeah, so to sit down on my own and just start writing, it would have probably been like 72,000 pages, most of the mindless minutia that nobody cared about, you know, so. Right. Well, I mean, I, Steve, I mean, it, he's he's a great guy, uh, great very guy. talented writer. Um, was there any concerns when you were telling your stories about maybe some people you were telling stories about? I mean, did you have to censor yourself? Uh, not while I was telling the story, because you get all engrossed in it. But when you start reading, you know, when you start reading it back and you mm. remember what you said, <laughs> right? you know, fortunately, I'm in a stage in my life where, I, listen, I don't, this is not like some big, huge career I worry about torpedoing. So I don't give a shit. You know, I tell stories about Gene Simmons and David Geffen. A million people have a million stories about those guys. And they I read about them all the time. So they didn't get sued or worried about it. But, you know, interpersonal dynamics of like band members and when things, you know, kind of fell apart with one person or an ex-wife. And it was funny because I had this, you know, this conversation with Steve because, you know, got a final draft together and it just it all of a sudden I started to get cold feet and he told me that he had worked with a bunch of people and it never really came to finishing an actual project you know and I I understood that after I was done because when you see it all laid out and there's maybe 15 20 whatever the number of people that might disagree with your remembrances or don't like the way you've described something, you risk a lot of personal relationships having tension put into them by releasing this for the world to see. 
And I could see where people get cold feet and just go, you know what, dude, I don't need to do this crap. And then they just put it in the drawer. Like when you write a letter to somebody and you never mail it, you know, kind of mm -hmm. thing, because it just was more cathartic than it was to actually, you know, the point was to actually send it to somebody. And so I just had to share that with Steve. Just go, dude, I, it's, if you were ever concerned that it was your, that you had a part in maybe somebody not wanting to finish this sort of concept, it's not you. It's the person having these sort of, oh my God, do I really want to do this? Do I want to talk about the, you know, the breakup with the bass player or the breakup of a marriage and, you know, having them come back to you and go, hey, asshole, that's not how it went down. You know, right, right. I don't ever, don't ever call me again, you know, kind of thing. Right. And you run, you run that risk when you put stuff out there in the public. And fortunately, and it's been out long enough now that I would have gotten probably reports from someone that's really fuming mad about something. Everybody felt that I was at least fair in my okay. in my opinions about how something particularly went down. And I really went out of my way to try to leave judgments out of things, just to try to tell it as you know, to, to be fair and think about the fact that, you know, 80% of the people that I might be telling stories about, I love dearly, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I want them to not be um, upset about something I either said or just talking about it at all. And fortunately, every response has been really good. So mm -hmm. I'm grateful for that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now you get into a little bit in the beginning with your mom. And how she yeah. was a little abusive with you. I mean, was that hard? Well, to, yeah. <laughs> was that hard to talk about? I mean, no, nah. Because you know, yeah. when you get to be my age, you know, it's just part of your history. It is what it is. You come to terms with it, and you know, I, I go to later on talking the book about my own sort of problems with substance abuse, mm -hmm. and, you know, that kind of stuff, and you know so when you go through it yourself you wind up having a sort of an understanding about how somebody else might behave inappropriately while under the influence or in the in the throes of sure. a, of a, a drug or alcohol problem so to me it's all funny now at this point <laughs> right, know, once right. you survive something it's like laughing after you survived the car crash you know right right <laughs> How did it make you feel when you finally got that book in your hand? Um, it, it was exciting because I, you know, to be a published author and to see, you know, right. my tattoo on the cover and, you know, there's my name and everything. It was very exciting. It, sort of like when you, when you hear a piece of your music on the radio for the first time, it's like, mm. wow. This, and, and it just felt like a, a great payoff after a, about a solid year of work on this. You know, me and Steve wow. probably talked once or twice a week for a couple of hours a day for a full year going through all this stuff. And then, you know, and then tons of time editing too, because sure. I, as you can tell, have diarrhea of the mouth. So <laughs> <laughs> I can talk a lot. You know, it's the front man of me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, I think it's a great book. And I, I love, I love books like that. And, and I wasn't disappointed with what I've read so far. And I'm looking forward to finishing here in the next couple of days. There you go. Thank you. Awesome book. Now, one thing I didn't know is now Little Caesar had so much going for him at the beginning. Yes. I was not aware 
that you had yeah. all those people behind you and it just dropped like that. It did. Um, and it's interesting because even at the time we had this sense of foreboding that to have some of the most influential and most powerful people in the music business all involved in one project, we could sense early on that there was a lot of interpersonal dynamics and egos involved that most bands didn't have to deal with. You know, guys like John Kaladner and Jimmy Iovine and David Geffen and all these people, they all think that, you know, the waters part for them. And when they have a difference of opinion on a business level, um, it can get pretty fraught and tense. And then when you hit turbulent times, so to speak, what winds up happening is, is these people don't want to have any accountability because they've got a track record to protect. So it's real interesting how when something like that is going great, it can be great. When it goes bad, it can be really bad. And that's what happened. Mm -hmm. How how long was it in the good, I guess? Because it seemed like it happened pretty quick where it started to fall, you know, lose oh, the direction. Oh, it fell apart, literally. We went from being like the most band added at radio and immediately going into heavy MTV rotation. It went from that to in the toilet in a six-week period. Six weeks. Six weeks. And all the bottom just fell out so fast with the sale of the label, the firing of the label manager, uh, David Geffen and Jimmy Iveen having a, a fight. Um, the label manager that wound up getting fired, making some really bad decisions right before he left as to how to approach the band's business. All of that went down in literally three weeks in a three to four week window. And two weeks after that, it was in a, tr it was in a, a burning pile of mess in the dumpster that no one wanted to take any accountability or revisit. And we were just left standing there going, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> right. Because there was so no bouncing, there was no bouncing back from it. Man. It was crazy. So, I mean, do you, looking back on it now, do you have any flags that you could have that you should have seen back then to sign with Geffen at the time? Well, it wasn't so much to sign with Geffen. It was for me to make a more impassioned defense of my opinions. Hmm. I wound up falling into this thing going, well, God, I, I can't tell, you know, Jimmy Iovine or David Geffen or John Kaladner how this business works because I'm just a guy in a new band. But the main, the first thing that got us in trouble was when I didn't put up enough of a fight when Bob Rock started to mix our record and it got really slick and produced and mm -hmm. tried to roughen it up a little bit. But for the most part, Bob did what he wanted to do. And the initial concept of us being more like a junkyard or ACDC or Raging Slab or, you know, you know, or early Soundgarden, a really organic, you know, sort of rugged kind of band, sonically, we let them get all sort of slick and pretty. And the argument from guys like John Kaladner and the corporate guys was, hey, man. Why should you limit yourself sonically to that sort of more crude, down-to-earth, 
sort of, because we wanted it to be like a 70s sounding record. Well, that's which, what you were more. Yeah. I mean, we were basically a blues place classic rock band. We weren't right. sort of in that glam metal. We were just a straight ahead rock band. And we wanted to make a very 70s bad company meets ACDC meets Leonard Skinner kind of record. And that was the plan until, you know, Dr. Feelgood, Motley Crue, which Bob produced, went to number one. And all of a sudden, Bob decided that everything he did had to have that big production sound. And we were up in Vancouver all by ourselves. And the work was progressing. And we were calling down there, warning them that we were doing tons of overdubs. And it was getting really kind of anal and weird. And they just told us to shut up and just don't argue with the guy. He's now a number one producer. And we're like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is not going the way we talk. And sure enough, the record, we started to mix it. And the, 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 the productions were coming back and they sounded really glossy and all the rough edges were taken off the band. And I was telling them, listen, look at the picture of the band. We look like these tattooed, axe-murdering biker dudes. And our records are kind of, the record's kind of slick sounding. And I think that's a problem. Sure enough, that's the excuse that they used when everything went in the crapper over that three, four-week period to cover their ass. They tried to blame it on the band, that the band's look was too rugged compared to its sound. And we're like, that's exactly what we told you. But rather than us, and then they try to get us to like cut off our goatees and wear prettier clothes and become looking like winter. And we weren't that. We were just yeah, a, you weren't that band. And it was even funny because I even when I talk about it in the book. I had this this discussion with John Bon Jovi called. He got my number from Jimmy Ivy, who heard the story while meeting with Jimmy. And he goes, Give me that guy's number. And he called me up on my home phone in Hollywood. He just goes, Oh, it's John Bon Jovi. Whatever you do, dude, don't shave off your goatee. Don't put on pretty clothes. What I love about you guys is you're just a straight ahead. And I was like, oh, okay. But sure enough, we, we bowed to the pressure. Well, um, yeah. I mean, that's kind of a hard situation to be in, I guess. I mean, well, sure, what do you, you do, you know? What do you do? How do you tell, you know, guys like David Geffen and, and John Kalodner that, fuck you guys, we're going to do what we want? You know, that would have that would have gotten into his, gotten us into as much trouble business-wise. Hmm. So we play along. We try to be nice and play along. And at that point... Nobody wanted the stink of a band that spent a whole lot of money making a record. Um, that you know, because back in those days, bands only got a six to eight week window when they released a record. If they didn't see a lot of ads at radio, if they didn't see like MTV responding, if they didn't see sales picking up, they would just basically pull the plug on it and move on to the next band in in, in the magazine, so to speak. And you know, we had great numbers coming out, and then literally two weeks later, when all this stiff stuff went down and started to go down over the next three weeks, when it all imploded, they rather than try to stand there and do the hard work to try to correct all these things, they all jumped like rats off a sinking ship. Mm. And you know, we had to get rid of Jimmy Ivy because of this fight with David. You know, Next thing you know, we're kind of out there standing naked in a field and nobody wanted to come to our aid. And, you know, this was our career. To them, it's just another release on a label, whatever. You know, it wasn't their money they were spending, you know. It was ours, you know. Right. At least what we were obligated to under contract. 
you know, so all of this money they spent making the record, all of the money that we lived on while we waited for, you know, Bob Rock and John Kalodner to get over their little fight that held us up for almost a year and all this kind of stuff, you know, behind the scenes, ego-based silliness, you know, that mm -hmm. wound up, you know, falling all into our backyard. And at one point it just wound up becoming such a heap of trash that everyone just said, Ooh, it smells over there. Let's stay away. And that's, did, that's what wound up happening. Did you ever want to try and get out of the deal with Geffen? During well, the, 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 the final thing that it wound up coming down to while we met with David Geffen sitting in the corporate offices that Geffen was, listen, we, we have, we're, we're at the point where the contract is up, your option is up. Now, we're happy to let you go, um, but if you go and you go to Electra or Epic or Columbia and you don't have any of these problems and the band winds up becoming a hit, it makes my label look bad. It makes everything that you've been saying in interviews about all the stuff that went down over the last couple of months, it's going to look like that's you were exactly right. And I can't look bad. So, yeah, you're free to go to another label, but I'm holding you. And you pointed at me to the to what's called a key man clause in the contract. They can hold on to individual members. They can let the band go. And he's like, you know, so whatever. I'll have you under contract if you want to make some new demos of a song or something as a solo artist, you know, send it to me. And I'm like, I'm not a solo artist. I'm a, mm. I'm a singer in the band, you know? So they, they, they let us go with the insurance that we couldn't have reformed on another label. So that was kind of the beginning of my demise. I'm like, well, what do I do now? You know, <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. I'm kind of in this limbo. So I have no choice. I can't keep this thing that I've been nurturing for the last three, four years alive. I'm going to have to go and find another band. And that's when I started to look at other projects. because So, so you could get in another band, just not with those guys? Yes, I couldn't get together as, as Little Caesar. I couldn't put out recorded music under the name Little Caesar hmm. uh, on another label. Hmm. So... You know, that's when, you know, I started to try to work with Slash and try to work with, you know, the White Snake guys and try, you know, all this other guys that I was trying to, you know, get keep my career going with in one way, shape, or form, none of which panned out. But, you know, mm -hmm. that was, I had no choice. Couldn't keep doing this thing that I spent my life devoted to. Mm -hmm. That just wasn't going to happen. They wouldn't let that happen. So, yeah. Well, one of the know, other listen, this is this is the rough and tumble world of corporate rock. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. It's not not well, a it great is. business, but most of the time. Yeah. yeah, you know. So it's and for me, I just wound up deciding to get numb rather than lick my wounds and dust myself off. I was just like, oh, I didn't become the rock star they promised me. You know, you don't understand how bad it is, man. So I just started to get loaded every day, and I became a waste colic, you know? So Is that when you got into the heroin? Yeah, that's when I started doing dope every day. Just going, man, you don't understand. Mm. <laughs> you know? mm. And it was all shit. I just had a lot of feelings I couldn't process. A lot of anger, a lot of disappointment, a lot of depression. And I decided to get numb rather than deal with it. You know, it's it's a real easy way out, you know? Yeah. And I just always assumed because, you know, all the years that I was in a band and around all those drugs and alcohol, I never, I was never a partaker, you know, I have a right. couple of beers, 
smoke a joint, take a Xanax every once in a while. But music was my drug. Sure. And when that was taken away from me, man, I just dove into the deep end of the pool and got numb every day. You know? So yeah. it happens to a lot of guys, you know, and, and it happened to me. So. Right. And you made it out, though. I mean, how did you get past that for you? I got past it by losing everything. <laughs> yeah, you know, my wife left me. She kicked me out of the house. I had, at the time I was working for the same company. She got me fired, so I had lost where I lived. I lost my wife. I lost my job, and fortunately, somebody turned me on to this thing called um, the Musicians Assistance Program. And between MAP and Music Cares, which is organizations devoted to helping musicians with drug problems. They got me into a rehab and I got clean. And then I had some friends that gave me some work as I, you know, had to kind of rebuild my psyche and my life from the, you know, cause I was, I crawled in into a, you know, a chunk of tar heroin for almost seven years. So Man. there wasn't much, much going on in my life at that point. So right. I took that as the opportunity to, to learn about all the crap from my childhood with my mom and all that stuff to try to become a better person, you know, to deal with my wreckage, to deal with uh, all of that unresolved anger and disappointment about, you know, not having a career become successful. And really, I had no choice but mm -hmm. to get my shit together. It was that or, you know, and the bizarre thing is, and I don't even think I put this in the book, I'd say for a good year and a half, two years, I woke up every day going, well, if it gets really bad, I can always just blow my brains out, <laughs> you know? And that, for some reason, gave me the sense, some sense of relief of, dude, you know, whatever. If it gets really painful or really hard or really shitty, you can always just check out. But mm -hmm. until then, one more day, you know? So that whole one day at a time thing that they talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous and all that stuff, it's really one day at a time. And I, yeah. I understood what that meant. And next thing I know, you know, years went by and I was still sober and I never felt the need to blow my brains out. I'm like, hey, look at that. You made it through, you know. That's awesome. Sometimes that's all you get, you know. Yeah, yeah. And you're happy now, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was happy. Once Once I got sober, um, I got to the point of learning how to um, accept that whole crash and burn of my music career and just go, you know, dude, you can still get to make music. At that point, music stopped becoming a journey of the wallet and it became a journey of the spirit. Hmm. I stopped worrying about whether I was going to make a living doing it. I just made music for the music. Sure. And got to take the skills that I learned making music by getting into sort of behind the scenes production stuff ran a venue in LA for almost 10 years, which was a lot of fun to do while I was making music on the side, went right back to just, you know, working a day job, so to speak. It was in the music business and it was a lot of fun. And I got to stay connected to all my friends and, you know, I, I'm sort of a tech nerd anyway, you know, I'm all at the push buttons and yeah, mixing and all that stuff. So it was a really fun job. And oddly enough, as soon as I stopped making music for a living and worked a regular job, Hey, look at that. You got enough money to buy a house, you know, right. at least a down payment. And look at that. Your credit rating is good enough because you've been working a job and paying your bills that they'll give you a mortgage. You know, and, I'm like, and everything wow, feels good. I never got that playing in a band. Right. <laughs> you know? so, right. 
and you're still you know? making music. So yeah. So I got to find that balance between, you know, having having the thing that put food on my table be the thing that woke me up in the morning with passion. I found something that I enjoyed doing that was tolerable enough to feed myself and keep a roof over my head. And that freed me up in my free time to go make music unencumbered by worried about, well, how much are we getting paid? And what's, can we get a record deal? And no, you just make music. The funny thing is, is when I stopped worrying about getting a record deal was when I got a record deal. I just put a band together. Because remember, this is 1987, 88, when I formed Little Caesar. Mm -hmm. Every rock band was dressed like chicks. You know, they were all wearing, you know, very effeminate clothing with makeup and, you know, giant hairdos. And I'm like, I don't look good suited up like that and it's kind of hard to look like that and ride the motorcycle i love so we were like why don't we just put a band together a bunch of scumbag looking dudes and just not give a shit and oddly enough that was sort of we were unique by looking like guys you know we look like the roadies we look like you know guys in skinner or almond brothers or and back then having facial hair people were looking at us like we were weird do you not want a record deal you can't have a, a right. goatee and get a record deal. You got to look pretty. And we were like, oh, fuck that. We don't care anymore. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, that's when, you know, all of these managers and agents and A&R guys start showing up at the gigs. And we were like, wow, this is pretty funny, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. I took that lesson and, and built on it, you know? Yeah. Well, you had the attitude. And, you know, at that time, that's kind of when that, that glam stuff was switching more towards the attitude as well. Yes. And it's funny because we used to make the argument at Geffen that, listen, and we even use this word that we think people are going to want an alternative. All of these slick, overproduced, studio-created bands that are all trying to look like they're in arenas with the light shows and the big stage productions and all of the glamour, you know. And we were using the term alternative. And then oddly enough, a year after we come out, 91, alternative, which is what they were calling grunge in a broader context. Because we saw that it, it couldn't sustain, you know, this whole thing of sort of rock track power ballad, rock track power ballad that everybody is cranking out on MTV was getting very formulaic. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard to tell the difference between a lot of those bands. And also, a lot of labels signed a lot of bands out of L.A., and a lot of them sure. were not really very good. Right. But they were just trying to cash in on the wave. And sure enough, as soon as Soundgarden and Nirvana hit, all of a sudden they started to sign a million of those kind of bands. You know, mm-hmm. it was like, you know, it's like Pearl Jam and, and Stone Temple gave way to Creed, gave mm-hmm. way to Nickelback, gave way to, you know what I mean? It's like, and all of those bands had a very similar type of thing going. And then the A&R guys who typically don't have a great amount of vision just heard bands that sounded familiar to what was on the radio and they gave them record deals, hoping that they could suck them up in the, in the draft, in the vortex of that success. Right. And unfortunately, every scene like that gets to a point where it's saturated. And it always happens. Want- yeah, and people want to hear something different. And that's what basically was happening in 88, 89. 
mm-hmm. kind of hit the tipping point in 90, and then all of those bands came out of Seattle, all those sub-pop bands. You know, and I, I remember hearing from a lot of guys on the Sunset, say, oh, my God, those bands suck. And I'm like, they don't suck. They're actually really good bands. I mean, I get it. You don't appreciate maybe the music of it, but it's honest music. Mm-hmm. And, you it know, different. And it's, it's, it's different and it's fresh and you might not like it, but you shouldn't write it off as being, you know, as being uncredible music. Not to mention that, dude, I know that when you go in the studio, it takes 54 takes for you to get your vocals <laughs> down. So don't tell me it's not credible. You're the one who's, you know, a sort of a studio creation. Live, you go see some of these bands. You listen to a lot of those 80s bands and you saw them live and you're like, wow, they're nowhere near as good as their records. Right. Because they relied a lot on heavy, heavy production values, you know? Yeah. Yeah, were you guys a studio band? Did you go in and just lay it down, or we? Yeah, I mean, we were a live band. So everything we did was, you know, you cut it live. You get a great, you know, like they. Again, the bands we emulated were bands in the '60s and '70s. They didn't have the technology. So, mm-hmm. and even really in 1989, they didn't even have digital editing machines yet. There was a thing called a Fairlight system, which was like a hundred thousand bucks that you could transpose analog sounds into digital and edit them and that was new technology so mm-hmm. you know oddly enough and again i don't i've got no love loss love loss with mr vince neal but you know when we went up to do the record bob rock was telling the story of he brought in a, a newfangled 64 track digital machine to do make vince do 64 passes on a song and they would edit the actual tape to the point of editing syllables together to get a good vocal performance. Mm-hmm. That to me was shocking because I grew up on the bad companies and the temptations and all these bands that went in and you did sometimes up to 30 takes until it started really gel. Yeah. And you know what happened in the eighties and nineties. Great. So you overdub a guitar solo or you overdub background vocals, or you overdub or you do another pass on a vocal and drop in a verse, you know, that was about as much technology dependent as we were. We wanted to cut everything live. Mm-hmm. Just thought music, the magic of a great live tape, which is, you know, you listen to the stones or any of these bands and man, you can hear, you can hear them hitting the tambourine and it's way out of time. And then you can hear it a mistake here or there, and they, they didn't get anal back in those days. They were more concerned with personality and yeah. feel. And the bands in the difference. 80s, yeah, and the bands in the 80s, all of that music started to lose personality. Yeah. You know, I tell that story of listening to a Blue Murder track in John Colado's office at Geffen, and then all of the radio guys and John, and they were all like, oh my God, do you hear that snare drum sound? And I'm like, a snare drum sound? You guys have gotten to the point that you think a record's going to sell because of a snare drum sound? Right. It's like, what about the feel? What about the hook? You, you guys are so caught up in this production wizardry that you're losing track of what makes a magical piece of music, which is a great song and a great performance. And I think right. a lot of bands sort of, you know, they, they lost that in the 80s. You know, sure, we're sure, always sure. the Van Halen's and we're always the, you know, ACDC's. 
you know, Rolling Stones, you listen to those records, man, and you know that those were, that was them cutting tracks in there, and then, you know, maybe an overdub here or there, but it was about the performance, not about the production. Yeah, yeah. Now, you guys, the tour you went out on was with Kiss and Slaughter, correct? Correct. Was there any other big tours, or was that the only one at that time? No, that was the only major tour that we did. Okay. We, we did some one-off dates with some men like George Thurgood, and you know, we did, but the the actual where you're out there in the bus on the road. And oddly enough, we were that tour originally, the Maybe Shade tour was originally Kiss, Winger, and Slaughter. Mm -hmm. And I think some dates were done with, I think, either, I think Faster Pussycat. Okay. And Winger got, Winger was in the studio. They did their record gave it to the label and went out on that tour. And the label said, we don't hear a really strong single. We need you to come off the road and write some more songs and record some more songs. So they dropped off the tour. And that's when Jimmy and Gene got together and they stuck us as the opener. And as soon as Winger, Winger was really quick, they had a couple of really good songs in their pocket. And they recorded them submitted them and the label said great so winger calls up gene and says okay when you know as soon as he need us back and gene's like now at this point when winger dropped off the tour kiss ticket sales went into the toilet well, winger was hot really, then, right? yeah winger and slaughter were the young vibrant bands that were mm. really putting bodies in the seats at mm. this point kiss isn't wearing their makeup you know they're wearing like human you know yeah, yeah, yeah. colored makeup and pretty clothes which isn't, you know, for real diehard Kiss fans, that's, you know, Kiss in their spacesuits is what's exciting. And, you know, the kids just kind of looked at them as being an older man, so to speak, you know? Sure. So mm -hmm. ticket sales really dropped off, and, and Gene kind of panicked about that. So he needed to get, off, get us off the tour as quick as he could get when you're back out. Mm -hmm. So we did, I think, eight weeks with him, and then... It was over. One of the best lines I've ever heard when Gene Simmons called up Jimmy Ivey and lied to him. Remember, this was before the internet. So you couldn't wake up in the morning and read the review from the show the night before. You had to wait a week till the review came in in the mail from the paper, you know? Right. right. He called up Jimmy and said, oh, you, I got to drop you guys off at the end of this run because they're going over like four chops in a bar mitzvah. That <laughs> <laughs> was. It was a total lie, but it was a great. It was a great line. Gene that is a great line. He's got some great lines. That sounds like Gene Simmons. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, now, Hot in the Shade. That was with um, uh, Eric Carr, right? Correct. It was with Eric. It was right before he wound up um, getting gravely ill with cancer. And Did you get to hang out with Eric at all, or no? Yes. And in fact, Eric was such a sweet, down to earth guy. You know, we, you know, uh, we hung out a lot with him. It was him and he'd hang out with us along with, um, oh God, now I'm going brain dead. Um, the guitar player in Slaughter. Um, Tim? Oh, the guitar player in Slaughter. Anyway, we had a little down to earth group of guys, you know. Eric was very humble. He wasn't the, the giant rock star that Gene and Paul are. Yeah. And so, you know, we all kind of linked up and, you know, we hung out all the time and they would ride on our bus. <laughs> That's know? great. Yeah. Because, you know, Dana Strum kind of, 
looked at himself as a baby Gene Simmons in the making. Mm. And he took on a lot of Gene's personality attributes, much mm. to the chagrin of some of the other people in the entourage, as they were, would say. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that had to be a great experience for you, though. Oh, man. It was just great. I mean, for me, to walk out on the Nassau Coliseum and the Meadow Brook, um, and the Meadowlands stage in New York, where I went and saw Kiss, right. where I saw Led Zeppelin and all these other bands when in my real early youth. So to be on that stage playing, that to me was greater than the record deals or anything else because that was that's the real damn deal right there, you know. Yeah. Play on that stage. Well, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it was was that the pig or the that dog? Was, that was an incredible truth. Yeah, yeah. Um, so after that tour, then, I mean, you did a couple one-off shows, like you said, and then that was it. Yeah, oddly enough, when we were out on, with all of this crashed and burned, was when we were on tour with this. So yeah, all of that crashed and burned while we were on tour. I remember using hotel room phones in like motel six calling back to jimmy ivy's office going well what do you mean they sold the label what what do you mean that you and david are having a fight what do you mean the label manager got mm. fired what the fuck is going on and we're like by the time we got home man it was crickets we were like what the hell happened yeah so it was a bizarre here we are on tour we're on MTV and heavy rotation and none of our records are in the stores because, you know, we're on technically our records have been distributed by Warner because, you know, Geffen was a Warner distributed act. When they sold the label, it became distributed by BMG. So all of a sudden, all the records are sitting in Warner Brothers warehouses and the orders are going into BMG and they're like, we don't have this artist in our warehouse. Oh, no. So we dropped off the charts in a couple of weeks because we weren't scanning any CDs. Oh. So it was just a nightmare. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the worst possible timing of everything. So who, who, who owns the rights to the songs now? Do you own them or? Well, this is the interesting thing. We've looked into this is different legal theories about this. First of all, there is a law, some obscure law that's on the books that if an artist at any time um, wants his masters back, they have to produce the original tapes. And since, remember, there was that big warehouse fire for yeah. Universal? Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of artists found out that their original master tapes were burned up right and that puts a lot of renegotiations on the table for royalty rates and legal rights to what you can release and can't release now we've never gone back to geffen to ask for that um because actually i was bootlegging our own music on on TuneCore for about five years <laughs> i was you know putting it up as if I had the legal rights to it when Geffen did. We got mm -hmm. caught, so whatever, but got oh, our man. hands left. But so there's there's some question, but I would I would guess because we were a universal, it was weird because 
we did the record up in Little Mountain up in Vancouver, which is a great studio, and they went out of business. So we don't know if the tapes were stored there or if they were if they were stored because I mean you wouldn't believe the you know you had the cult you had Aerosmith you had um, Loverboy all of these bands that recorded at Little Mountain Motley yeah. Crue mm-hmm. and when you walked into their tape vault it was just like wow you know yeah, you looked up it. and you saw all of these boxes of yeah. tape with you know. Aerosmith, you know, right. And so I would gather that when they went out of business, it all got shipped down to the Universal Warehouse. And then, it, you know, 90% of those masters burned up. Some really amazing music that was lost. And they tried to really downplay it and they tried to keep it quiet, just how bad it was. But quietly, many, many artists had their lawyer called up and say, um, we're demanding that you produce the original masters and the original stereo mixes. And if they couldn't produce them, let the renegotiations begin. And you so, didn't pursue that, or you did? No. It's to pay a lawyer for hours and hours of getting the runaround mm-hmm. <laughs> wasn't worth it to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, for those for those two records, quite honestly, I mean, if I had my way, I'd get them, and I'd love to just bring up the basic tracks and mix it the way we should have right. been mixing it. Right. Uh, but, you know, some of those things, you know, like from the musician side of things, when we were up there and Bob was letting a lot of performances go, honestly. And right after the whole Motley Crue going to number one thing, he got incredibly anal. The one story I remember, and I put it in the book, was he kept, he, he, he was having, one of the guitar players to like 20, 30 solo passes to the point where it wasn't even music anymore. You know, you, you mm. it becomes, you know, totally passionless because you're just going over and over the same eight bars. And Bob kept saying, it's out of tune, it's out of tune, which is weird because it's single notes. Mm. You can hear a guitar out of tune when you're playing chords because they're, the tonal reference between the six strings, but our, and he was saying it's out of tune. And our guitar tech up at the time, he kept tuning the guitar, saying, "Bob, it, it says right here on like two different locations on the neck, it's in tune." And finally, after like thirty passes, Bob just got up with, walked out there, picked up a pair of wire cutters from the tech table, and just cut all six <laughs> strings off. Said, "String again." <laughs> and then we did another twenty passes, and he was like. It just wasn't music anymore. So I don't even know how many of the really good, ooh, look at me, I just got blurry. All of the original performances that were really honest and and soulful, Bob kind of sanded all those edges off, and I don't even know how much would have even been left on the original masters, you know? Yeah. You ever think about going re-recording? We talked about that, but, you know, it's, what we've learned is this. We have done, let's see, we've done uh, an album called Redemption, American Mm -hmm. Dream, eight. Um, So we put out three full-length albums over the years. And I got to say that there's only a handful of people that really want to buy new music. They'll stream it. 
But to actual buy hard product now, I know that Aerosmith has set on record, Kiss has set on record. Forget there's about two other bands that have come out and said they will never make another new original music album. It's Four just album. not worth it to them. Nobody buys it, nobody cares. They people just want to hear the hits, they want to hear the old records. And now with streaming, you know, when a band like Aerosmith goes in, it's not a cheap undertaking. Right. You know, between the catering and the, and the hotel bills and high-end studio and all the staffing, they spend a lot of money to do a full record from pre-production to mix down. Mm-hmm. And they just don't generate enough revenue via streaming to come anywhere near covering those costs. So it's a loser for them. Right. So they just, you know, all of them are saying, eh, what's the point? You know, it kind of sounds like cranky old men, but, <laughs> you know, the fans. Well, I mean, I think you got to do it for you if you want to do it right now. Well, that's the thing, man. These you guys know. have enough money. They should do it because they love writing and they right. love recording together and they want to present new music because it's just in them and it's got to come out. Mm-hmm. And some of these guys have just gotten to the point of, well, you know, I've got. I've got a big mortgage to pay. Why should I waste my money for something that's not even going to get heard? That's kind of a cynical approach, I think. But yeah, well, yeah how about- so, you know, we haven't thought about like going in and spending the money to re-record it just to prove our point. You know, you know. Mm-hmm. So, do you have your own studio or no? No, but we have a very close friend that's got a great studio. He produces us, and so we go in there, and you know, it's. It's very cost efficient. Yeah. You know, we've got a rehearsal place. So we go in well, well rehearsed and ready to record. We mm-hmm. don't take around in the studio. Sure. We just, you know, we set it up where we isolate the guitars and get a good drum track and good rhythm tracks. And then just take that and throw a few overdubs on it, a few background vocals and off to mix. Mm-hmm. We did... The last three records, when we were on our own, we did in 21 days. We set we set this benchmark on the first one. We tried to hit it on every one, and we did it. 21 days, and they're only half days because we're all you know a lot of the guys are working mm-hmm. from drum tracks to mix down, and we do it in 21 to 26 days. Which you know, for half days, that's like nothing. You know, that's like eight grand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. studio yeah. time versus, you know, when we did Caesar's first record, it was $1.1 million with hotel bills, Bob Rock's fee, studio time, airlines. And we stayed up there. We didn't even fly back and forth. A lot of those flights were John Culloden coming up and taking vacation on our, on our that, budget. Yeah, that's part of <laughs> yeah. that 1.1. 1. 1. You know, four seasons, first class flight and four season hotel. And we're like, we flew economy and stay at the Motel 6. What the fuck is this? Yeah. You know, how, how do we have this the way, bill? The way it goes, man, you know? <laughs> so, right. you know? So we, we spent a whole lot of money, and we were up there for six months. That's a long six time. Six months. Mm-hmm. Just most of, I, I knew every inch of every strip club in Vancouver, and there was about <laughs> a dozen of them. Some of the best strip Yeah, there was a lot there the at world. that time, right? What's that? There was a lot of those up there at that time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Tons of with beautiful Canadian women mm-hmm. of the outback looking to come take all the money of all the loggers. And, right, right, <laughs> yeah. right, right. And it was we, like, well, 
What are we doing today? Well, Bob Rock's going to spend 30 hours on one guitar solo. What do you guys want to do? <laughs> I don't know. I guess let's go down and start making the rounds at all the strip clubs. What else do we have? Right, to do? right. Let's stare at some gorgeous women while we were alone and away from our wives. <laughs> well, you know. Yeah, you guys. Back out all, we started going fishing every day. <laughs> oh, know? geez. Now you guys are are still together right now, correct? Yeah, yeah. Nice. We're touring. We've we've toured Europe once to twice a year for the last ten years. Europe makes more sense. Much in than, the states because it's yeah, a, costs a lot more money to tour in the states than it does in Europe. Right? Isn't so, that crazy when you think about it? It is. Well, you know, it's the distance. Yeah. Between cities, markets. You know, I mean, just to get across Texas takes three days. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You can drive three hours and be in a different country in Europe. And mm -hmm. the other thing is, is that I really believe that American audiences are more apathetic. Mm -hmm. I think they appreciate live music more in Europe. Because they're used to the festival season and everything else. You know, it's one thing to go into, you know, you can go into a market, you know, like Austin or Houston or whatever. And again, if you're going to have to do a day and a half drive to get to the next major market that will fill pack in a venue, it's a lot of expenses. Sure. So we just wound up going over to Europe and we, we were better received over there as well. And, you know, once you start planting seeds and you nurture it, we go back every year and, it, and it's great. So we just doing well keep going back. So. Yeah. Okay. Is that the plan for the future? I mean, you guys just going to stay on that? Yeah. Route? I mean, we, we want to start doing now that COVID is over. The weird thing is, is we had about eight weekend fly dates planned in like the, in like Pittsburgh. Like we would do like Pittsburgh and I forget the cities, but we had done eight different weekends, like Boston, New York, like Tampa and Orlando, whatever. Mm -hmm. We had eight or nine of them mapped out, and then COVID hit. I had the flights booked and everything, and it all just went to shit. And that was, you know, coming, I believe it, three years. Yeah. yeah. So we want to get back into that. But the thing is, is the business has really changed. You know, a lot of these venue owners got so burned in COVID, they didn't get a lot of help, and they really took a hit. And now, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that for a band to go on tour for, say, a month, you know, once you figure out the bus and the crew, couple of crew guys in the hotels or flights, and it's a major, it's a major financial layout in the front end to, to reserve all of this and to lock it down. And you have to do it six months out. And with COVID, who's going to take a chance at six months from now is not some new variant. Mm -hmm. And then on top of it, Say a band used to get a $5,000 guarantee. Now the promoters are offering $2,000 and a percentage of the door. Basically saying, hey, I can't send you, because most bands want a 50% deposit. I can't send you $2,500. Have it sit in your agent's account. Hope that COVID doesn't hit when you're going to do your show. So, you know, I'll give you $2,000 and a big percentage show up if everything goes good and you draw the way you typically draw then you're going to make as much money maybe even more but well, the band's like i can't take that chance mm -hmm. <laughs> you know right got yeah, too they have people, to too many mouths to feed and too many and it's really changed the nature of touring 
And there's a lot of bands who are going deep into their own pockets, putting a lot of money up front, rolling the dice on the tour. And then on top of it, what people don't realize is with everything shut down for two to three years and then COVID opens up and bands are back out there, venues are booked 18 months to two years out now because there's so many bands looking to get out there that the competition is fierce. Mm -hmm. And you can't get a hold of bands. You can't get a hold of crew guys are all booked up. And it's because the floodgates opened it. Everybody's rushing out there where it used to be spread out more. Mm -hmm. And now everyone's trying to make up for that lost revenue and get connected back to their fans. And yeah, it's really going to shake this industry up. And I have no idea where it's going to net out. Well, we have bands come through here. I'm in Myrtle Beach and we have some known bands. If I said the names, you'll know who they are. And we have them come through here and play and they're setting up their own equipment. Yeah, no, they can't yeah. afford it. No, I know. Yeah. We've been doing that for years, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. um, because we can't afford it. Not because of, you know, so now right. these guys who, you know, they had their, and now remember these crew guys, they're family to these bands and these mm-hmm. bands have to make really tough decisions. And I got to say, it really affects a band's musical performance when they pull in, they got to unload the band, you know, they got to set up the gear, they got to check the gear, they got to sound check the gear. Then they grab a bite to eat, and then they come out and tune up the guitars and get ready. Now, then they go put on their little glamorous stage clothes. Then they got to completely shift their psyche from crew guy, technical guy to creative guy. And then they got to break it all down, pack it up, make sure they don't lose anything. Get in the van and go to the next town. We'll get in the bus or whatever they're doing. They're sleeping in buses. It's a lot. They get one day room and they take a shower, you know? It's yeah. But you know, this is either because this is what they have to do for their soul or because this is how they've made their living for the last 20 years. They got no choice. Yeah, they do. To the fans out there listening to this. Be a little more understanding of what bands have been going through, <laughs> what bands are going through to get out there on the road these days to play for you. Yeah, yeah. All right, Ron. Well, look, your book—you told a lot of the, a lot of the stories that we touched yeah, on are, are in here. You've got a lot more in here. Great book. Um, where can people get that? Amazon, right? Amazon. Yep. It's now we're now up to eleven countries. <laughs> hey, there you go. anybody want listening to this, you can get it on Amazon. It comes an actual book. I'm shocked about that that they have that technology to just print them up and send them out to people. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, you can read the book and yeah, you know, follow me on Facebook. Check out Little Caesars music. You know, it's you know, it, it's. We're still selling it door to door, my friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we're like a vacuum salesman, just trying That's to get awesome. five Don't more stop. followers a week. You know, Don't so stop. yeah, check it all out. Hopefully, I've kept you all entertained out there in podcast world. So awesome! And you still got your voice, right? Yes, I do. I'm lucky. Awesome. I'm, I'm lucky. I've lost maybe a note in my range, mm-hmm. you know, so with just a slight half step down on guitar tuning, I can still sing all the songs. I haven't blown it out. Fantastic. You know, I didn't do too much Coke to drink it during <laughs> the actual performance years to screw it up. So I'm grateful. 
Awesome. Well, Ron, I appreciate it, man. Hey, listen, you hang on before, before I don't hang up. Okay. When we stop, but I appreciate it, bud. My pleasure. It was a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate it.